Hail and well met. You must be today's passengers. Well, welcome aboard, welcome aboard. Your cabin is right this way. You'll find it all well stocked, ready for you. If I can just check your tickets, yes? Okay, everything seems to be in order. And who am I? Well, I'm Drew Broussard. I'll be your host, your guide, your tour guide, as we embark on an intrepid voyage, a voyage into genre. It's hard to realize just how entwined technology is with your life until you don't have it suddenly. This happened to me recently in one of those weird twists of fate, or maybe curses of fate. I did something wrong at some point, and a witch was mad at me, and so my laptop died. Well, the laptop didn't die, but the USB-C ports did. Couldn't use them, couldn't charge, couldn't plug in my microphone, couldn't really do anything. And this happened to occur just as I was finishing editing episode one for this season of the show. I had to send my laptop away to get it repaired. And so suddenly, unexpectedly, and at a moment of relatively high stress, I didn't have the machine that enables me to do most of my jobs. As a podcaster, as a writer, as an event producer, everything was contained in this device. And sure, I had my wife's laptop that I could do a little bit of work on to make sure that the episode got out. I had my phone so that I could still be in touch with various people about various projects. But there was a fundamental shift in my body. And frankly, I didn't like it very much. It was very disconcerting to be forced to grapple with the role that technology now fills in my life. Because also, I'm old enough to remember when I had none of this stuff. Sure, I was a kid, but I lived part of my life without these things that now I cannot imagine my life without. So it's fitting that this week we're going to turn to thinking about technology. Slightly dystopic, maybe. Slightly hopeful, possibly. But as with any good slice of speculative fiction or of reality, we all know it's never quite one or the other. Samit Basu is an Indian novelist, film director, and screenwriter. He's best known for his speculative fiction work, including the Game World trilogy, his superhero novels Turbulence and Resistance. He also writes for younger readers, he works in comics, and most recently, he published The City Inside, which was originally published by Simon & Schuster India under the title Chosen Spirits, which was shortlisted for the JCB Prize for Literature, which is India's top fiction award. The City Inside is a deceptive novel. Every time you think it is going to be one thing, it shifts or reveals something else that makes you reconsider what it is. Is it a dystopian novel? Is it a novel of the future or is it a novel of the present? It's set in a near-future deli where Joey, a reality controller, works managing the multimedia live stream for an online celebrity figure who happens to be her college ex. She's shaping culture, but also just trying to live her ordinary life, dealing with her parents, 
parents, dealing with friends of the family being foisted on her for a job. And that's kind of how Rudra comes into the picture. He's an outcast from his traditional family, and he ends up working with Joey as the two of them fall deeper and deeper into something that kind of looks like a conspiracy or like several conspiracies that builds maybe into a larger conspiracy, but maybe it's also just how we live under surveillance capitalism. On a very hot early morning in upstate New York and a very hot afternoon in New Delhi, Samet and I talked about technology, dystopia, and why he wanted to write something set in the near future. Like I think everyone else in the world, I've spent most of the last decade or at least the last five years getting increasingly anxious about how fast everything is changing and how systems all over the world seem to be in at least a mild state of collapse. And I thought, why not use my supposed skill as a science fiction and fantasy writer to map out what would happen in the near future in the place that I lived. Why not work on quelling your anxieties or at least outlining your anxieties and maybe get a book out of it was my starting thought. I actually spent a lot of years on this because it kept me a bit sane during Bollywood meetings of which there were hundreds each more chaotic than the last. But after a certain number of years had passed, I decided it was time to sit down and put the book together. I had by this point charted out a 50 year future history of this part of the world, which was not the cleverest way to spend my time because I didn't end up using most of it. And also what kept happening was that the news kept completely spoiling my history. Horrible things that were supposed to happen 10 years later kept happening next week. So I realized that the best thing to do was start writing the book. And here we are. I mean, it's a testament to this book how plausible everything feels. Not a single thing doesn't feel like an incredibly logical progression from where we are. And I was going to ask you how you were building it. And I think I want to know more about this incredibly detailed what's going to happen over the course of the next 50 years in India document. I ended up abandoning it because my instinct when I'm writing is to go for that big fantasy adventure sort of thing. That's most of my work. But since I had based so much of the research on a very specific real world and one that I lived in the middle of, it began to look like I would have to really make a hard choice between immersion and escape. And I love both immersion and escape in my SF and fantasy books. But it felt a bit wrong, really, to present the idea that in such a reality-based world, there could be a tech-driven solution or a revolution or any kind of heroic journey that could transform society immediately for the better in a sustainable way. So I found myself drawing back constantly, which is why I ended up at approximately 10 years later future, where the goal was really to make it as real as possible in the sense that all the tech in the book is not wild invention. It's all stuff that's actually been invented, at least in prototype. So the question really is, over the next 10 years, would this tech reach my part of the world? And if so, how would it be used? What are the social and political consequences of this tech? being used on a mass scale? Who would it be used by? What would it be like for various strata of society to experience this? The fields of work, the locations, the people, they're all kind of shamelessly stolen from things I actually know in my real life. So every person is someone I know at least partly. Every field of work is something I've had experience in. Every location is a place I've been and spent a lot of time with. So I was hoping that all of this put together would make it plausible and immersive. Thank you for saying that it is. What is it like for you now? 
now, having been immersed in this slightly future version of your world, that I imagine as you were writing it, like you said earlier, the news started to get a jump on you a little bit. How does it feel to be living that much closer to the present tense of the book? I think the world went into a spin in 2020 and 2021. So it was like the more logical progression of everything was put on pause. Like in the Indian edition, which came out just about when the pandemic started, there was a pandemic that had happened at some unspecified time in the decade that we didn't talk about in the present of the book. When the book became The City Inside from Chosen Spirits, most of the work was really about shifting around the background to incorporate the effects of 2020 and as much of 2021 as I could into the world of the book, into the characters, into the backstory without really shifting the central plot or the characters a lot. That was an interesting exercise and I don't think it's something that I'll probably get to do again. So it was really interesting doing that. And otherwise, since I'm pretty much working with invented technology, nothing arriving in this part of the world and kind of behaving like it behaves in my book will be a surprise at all. Right. I'm not going to shout about, hey, I said this would happen. <laughs> because that can be a thing too, right? Like you can get obsessed with, I predicted this correctly. No, I didn't predict anything correctly. I do want, um, I have been thinking about my next tattoo recently and reading about the smart hats. I don't know. I grew up reading a bunch of classic science fiction and for a long time was like, any new technology is cool technology and I can't wait for it. And yes, give me all of the augmentations. Do all of the cool stuff to me. And now as I get older and see the dangers of technology, I'm more leery of these things. But man, those smart hats sound really cool. They do, right? And the thing is, we're all going to get them. We know that they're not good for us, but how can you not? Something that I really liked watching develop through the whole book is the way that all of the characters, but Joey in particular, there is this sense of what else am I going to do? I think I should be trying to fight this more. or I think I should be trying to think a little bit more critically about what's going on. But what else am I going to do? This is the system and how tiring it can be to not even consciously fight the system, but just to be in this system. And I guess I want to ask you about tiredness and about the struggle that underlies so much of this book that certainly comes to the fore by the end, but that's churning in the background for a while. Even before the pandemic, there's been this growing sense of loss of control and loss of agency that I think a lot of people have experienced in every kind of large democracy, at least, where you see things happening in very discernible patterns around the world and spotted well in advance, shouted about during, and yet things just keep going on. And there is a collective tiredness about having to get up and keep shouting about wrong things that are happening because you don't really know what else to do and somehow it just all fizzles out. So for us, for the last decade or so, we've been seeing the idea of the country slide away from this troubled but vibrant democracy, which knew how to handle complexity and multiculturalism and overall was heading towards this nebulous but shiny space in the world order. We've seen that really backslide into this very traditional, very patriarchal, very feudal country, which for a lot of people didn't exist before. And through most of the writing of this book, there were these vast and often technology-led social changes that were being imposed on the whole country from the government. And people were going out on the streets and shouting about it. People were writing about it. People were talking about it. But there seemed to be no particular dramatic effect of all of this. So 
everyone has been really fatigued with trying to speak up, trying to go to protests, trying to write, trying to work in any way possible to restore some sense of logic and order and a lot of values which we thought were embedded in the fabric of our society. And I see the same thing happening to people on the internet around the world. Like right now, I was seeing yet again, there's another wave of shootings happening in the US. Yeah. And just that repetition of the same things over and over again can lead to a great amount of fatigue for everyone. And yet you know that your role in society in some way is to talk about it. There was really no possibility that Joey and other people in the book could be people who by sheer strength of will or stubbornness or determination or cleverness could somehow fix things. These are often characters who in fiction are miscast as passive or, you know, confused or stuck and all of that. But it's not that. They have agency, they have ability, they have a certain amount of privilege. But even with the right intentions and a certain amount of power, they don't know what to do with it and they don't know how to bring about any change with it. The more real I tried to keep the book, the more unrealistic, for want of a better word, it felt that, you know, they could find that one secret password, hack into the system and bring down everything. That's just not the world they live in. That's not the world we live in either. Yeah. I kept thinking about the phrase scripted reality. You know, the reality TV boom is old enough to drink in America. It's nothing new. We've had whole generations of people who've grown up with it and the ways in which it has affected, I think, the whole world's conception of reality. This is also the world that we live in. Were you ever tempted, I guess, to inject more hope? Or was there ever a point where you were like, ah, I gotta try to find that hack? You know what? I actually was trying to do that all through the book and I was quite surprised, but then I wasn't surprised at all when every description of it later was that it was a dystopian novel. Because <laughs> in my mind, it wasn't that at all. It was completely about being in the situation we're in in reality and taking a pragmatic but optimistic look at how things might play out because it was definitely difficult doing the research. You know, the more you read about things like climate change and the potential future of immigration and automation and what that's going to do for jobs and so on. Those texts are really bleak. The realities of the day-to-day -day news are really bleak as well. So yes, sure, it was challenging to try and balance all of that and create a way forward. But it was also a good way to deal with the reality that I was in when I was writing the book. And for me, a lot of the times I thought I was writing a workplace comedy. <laughs> I thought I was writing about people who were often well-intentioned, often not too bright, but always looking forward. And then when people read it and said, oh, this is a dystopian novel, there was a second of really? Because if you were looking at the research I was looking at, this is a best case scenario. It's possibly going to be a lot worse. There's a line, it might be my favorite line in the whole book, that dystopia requires distance. I guess I just want to dive in a little bit more to the tension of your readers are telling you this is a dystopia and you're saying, like, oh boy, if you think this is a dystopia, just wait till we see what actually happens. Yeah. And, you know, and this is how I feel when I read any dystopian work. So whether it's, you know, the classics, your 1984, your Fahrenheit 451, your Handmaid's Tale and all of that, my response to those is always, all right. 
and because those situations pretty accurately describe several parts of the country that I live in. Sometimes they're half an hour's drive away from where I live. Sometimes they're even closer. There is that very specific thrill of, oh, this possibly happens outside the world, but thank God it could never happen to us. But imagine if it happened to us. So what was very strange about writing this book was that this is pretty close to actual reality. You know, I mean, when this book came out in India, it got nominated for the country's biggest Litvik Prize because it wasn't clear to anyone that this was science fiction in any way whereas I kind of knew that it was but I didn't talk about it a lot when it came out here and no one else did either it's very interesting to me how we learn to look away from things that are actually happening and save our feelings for things in fiction because it's not hard to find you know the actual trauma of a dystopian environment that is in any book. It's not hard to find in the world that we live in. So those feelings are not ones that I feel when I read a work that's dystopian. And it's not just a locational difference, I think, because a lot of the people who were calling this book dystopian were people who live in the same world, you know? So it's not even me saying, oh, you live in America, you're very privileged, because it's not that, because you have all of this there as well. And it's so difficult for people to not look away from it. When I was looking at doing a near future book set in this part of the world, there is often an incentive, let's say, if you're writing from any part of the world that is quite troubled, there is a certain incentive in diving into really visceral, physically horrifying experiences. Mm -hmm. When I was thinking about it, I was very clear from the start that the characters in this book, at least the point of view characters in this book, would be the people who I was quite confident would still be around a decade later. And it felt very exploitative for me to even think of using point of view characters from the more oppressed sections of our society because I honestly don't know if they'll be around in the near future, which is a horrifying burden to carry when you're trying to make people up. It had to be about people who had the option of looking away, who if they looked away, good, if they conformed sufficiently, if they obeyed whatever the ever-changing rules of the society they were in work, had the option of having happy, successful lives, could have comfort, could have all the things you see in Black Mirror episodes before things <laughs> were horribly wrong. You know, who could have fun while they were doing it? Because this also the setting of your workplace comedies and your romance novels and your finding yourself narratives and so on. So it's hard to see it as a dystopia that way. It was these people and these these people are also people that I know because these people are the people who I've watched over the last decade completely switch politically, completely retreat into things like religion and spirituality and yoga, anything to avoid engaging with things that are being done in their name. And I wanted to look at people who could not do that for whatever reason. It makes me think about the comedic angles of the book. Joey's parents are both sort of horrifyingly clueless in a way that I look at certain members of a similar or slightly older generation here in the States. But there's also something so understandable about the ways in which the world changed so fast and that they are the ones responsible for it. Relatively early on in the book, there are a couple of moments where you highlight, yeah, of course, everybody shared all of their data. Of course, we did all of these things. And the ways in which at a certain point generationally, and I think this does happen for every generation, they just stop being able to keep up. I mean, I'm 33 and I feel that way about TikTok. And so I can only imagine how my parents feel about most social media, you know? I'm a bit older than you, so it wasn't TikTok. Uh, for me, it was Snapchat. Because I think everybody has that one app that is their wall. 
you know, like I was nervously, very tenuously trying to build a relationship with Instagram and then Snapchat mm-hmm. came. And it wasn't like I wasn't physically able to use the app, which sometimes happens for slightly older people as well. But it's just that I didn't understand what it wanted of me. And then TikTok came and TikTok used to be huge in India because TikTok was very interesting in India in the sense that it removed the barriers that were social. And a lot of people who were in rural areas in India started using TikTok to express themselves. So then, of course, TikTok got banned in India, Mm -hmm. which is why I cannot be part of the frightening but fascinating phenomenon that is book talk. But yeah. I mean, as far as Joey's parents are concerned, for the first time, I was doing a novel where I identified most with the parents of the lead character because they are my generation in the future. And they're getting stuck in this thing where we were promised one country, we got another one, and we don't know how to deal with it. And we refuse to change beyond a point, even if that puts us in physical danger. I see that sometimes when my elderly relatives, even now, suddenly decide they will let Facebook know how they feel. (laughs) Right. That's never a good idea. And, you know, and then running to turn off their modems. It's a new experience. I think previous generations have not had this experience. You said something earlier about how this book ends where a lot of stories would end their first act. And actually, we mentioned Fahrenheit 451 earlier. I had the same feeling the first time I read that as I did reading this, being like, wait, wait, wait a minute. This is the end? But they just figured it out. What about what about overthrowing the system? And what about the, all of that stuff? And I think that that sort of big adventure plot is fun and all, but the thing that's really interesting is that movement from complacency to being ready to do it. Yeah, that switch from distracted and manipulated to more self-aware and a little more, you know, with focus and clarity trying to figure out what to do. For me, in these times, I think that is the biggest challenge we all face in our lives. There's just so much to look at, both in terms of pleasure and in terms of figuring out what to do on the important things. I hate this feeling that there's 15 forces I can't understand messing around inside my brain. I don't like it, and they don't either. And I think that was a very central part of doing this. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you, this book that you had written and published in India, now revising, it's got a new title. I want to know more about the editing process and how it changed. What were the tensions in revising it? I actually had a very lovely editing process. I was a bit apprehensive before it began because I'm always very concerned about how, well, concerned as in there's nothing I can do about it, how people far away and from fundamentally different cultures interpret the same characters and the same action is a complicated thing. And for this book, because it was so unfamiliar to even myself, I had no idea whether it could travel because I know we all live in this kind of post-digital singularity thing where we speak the same language, which is Twitter language, and we've seen the same cats every day. But you know, you don't really know whether there are, I mean, obviously there are fundamental cultural differences between everyone. Between me and my downstairs neighbor, there are fundamental cultural differences. So I was a bit apprehensive about how that would translate into the editing process. But I have to say that Roshi Chen and Sana Alivirani at Taw.com were just amazing. It was a smooth editing process. And for the first time, there were no culture questions. There was not a single editorial input which said, explain this for Americans. Hell yeah. Which I deeply appreciated. 
I don't know if I thank them for it. I don't know if I have. In which case, I hope they're listening to this. <laughs> but, but I can't tell you how much relief and how much freedom that gave me because the edits were really focused for me on bringing 2020 and 2021 as much as I could into the backstory and the work. The title change, the idea came from my agent, Diana Fox, who felt that Chosen Spirits might be seen in America as a more spiritual book. Sure. And, you know, when I searched for it on Twitter, apart from my book, the phrases that come up are people speaking in a language I don't understand, but it's all very the spirits. So I thought that was a good idea after doing that search. Um, I was apprehensive about it, but it turned out to be a really lovely experience. It's not fashionable to love your publisher so much, but I really do. And I'm, I'm, I'm a very disgruntled person in general. Like I'm, I'm quite cantankerous and I'll complain given the slightest chance, but they've really been lovely. It's the first time that I feel like a book of mine is getting a fair shot outside India. So I'm very grateful about that. And I don't care how unfashionable it is to say so. Oh, that makes me think of one more thing I want to talk to you about, which is, you're so right, it is unfashionable in today's society to be an unabashed fan of anything. It feels so refreshing and rare when somebody is just a total cheerleader, is totally into something, kind of unabashedly happy about it. I am thinking about that in terms of the shows that are running in this world, and there are people who are just unabashedly excited about these stories. Do you think think that we can find the balance via technology to continue to sort of script reality and allow for the sort of positive expression of joy and excitement while also making sure that that joy and excitement doesn't blind us to the very dangerous things that can happen if we're not paying attention. That's a very interesting and also very complicated question. And to honor its interestingness and its complications, I'm going to say yes and no. <laughs> that whole balance perspective thing is also a function of safety and privilege. So when it comes to things like fandom or just loving something unambiguously and with your whole heart, it has been so easy for powerful people to transform that into a very hostile, very angry force. I mean, who would have thought that a website where you caught up with your college friends who you didn't really want to stay in touch with anymore would one day affect global democracy? So I think the push of big tech and of government in alliance with it will always be to gather people under massive groups which first pretend to be about loving something and then turn very swiftly into hating something which is exactly what happens with every huge religion in some form but having said that every time that has happened there has always been a counter movement which is aware of exactly what is going on even if it's always a few steps behind where you are seeing a pushback towards any kind of mass manipulation of people where you are trying to find whatever the ever-shifting new ground of sanity and logic and clarity is. So it's a hard question to answer because it's. I think it's going to be a perennial battle. These are interesting times and I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. Joma West is a third culture writer whose work straddles both fantasy and science fiction. Her novella Wild won the 2016 Manchester Metropolitan University Novella Award. She's had short stories published in various anthologies, and her debut novel is called Face. 
Face is a tightly contained dystopic novel looking at a handful of families and people, all more or less upper class, in a near future where touch has almost completely disappeared. Instead, people focus on how they appear to the world, their face, as it were. The story orbits around a couple, Skylar and Madeline Burroughs, some of their friends, some of their colleagues, and their in-house worker, who seems to be having some rather strange compulsions. The book is told in overlapping perspectives, and it makes you think so hard about some of the things we take for granted, like touch and physical contact. And I asked Joma how she got started with the idea to take that away. I was having a conversation with a friend who was talking about how they felt like intimacy and sex was really being pushed in every single facet of their life. And it was putting them off, making them feel icky about physical contact. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting. What if things went to such an extreme that everyone just stopped doing that? And then what would happen when you take away that element of people's relationships? That doesn't really cover certain people like, you know, ace arrow people who maybe don't go in for the sort of sexual side of things. But for a lot of people, their interactions with others are defined by the push and pull of that sort of physical attraction. So if you take that away, what then becomes the defining feature of relationships, what becomes important. So I thought that was a really interesting idea. And I started writing a short story, which was called Tonya. Well, it became Tonya's chapter. I wanted to explore how you might have a baby in a world like this and what that would feel like. And when I wrote the story, there was nowhere for it to go. It was quite a long, short story, and I didn't really know what to do with it. But I kept thinking about it, and several years later, I decided to write a story for a competition, which, again, I didn't end up doing anything with it, but it became the opening for Raina's chapter. And I was like, oh, this is quite fun that I can set things in the same world. Why don't I take that further? And that's when I started putting it together in my head about what a novel might look like. That's very cool. I like that it grew in, this is maybe going to seem like a weird analogy, but I've been out in the garden a lot recently, that it sort of grew like a plant finding its own path up. Yeah, I like that as an image. And it it had a very different structure when I did finish writing it, actually. Jake, the through line, was actually a single chapter on his own. He was only the second chapter and my agent read it and was like, the ending of this chapter should be the ending of the book. And he also felt like it was too interesting a chapter to just have in one place and then forget about. So he was like, why don't you break it up and scatter it throughout the novel? And I was like, why didn't I think of that? The structure of this book is fascinating. There are easy touchstones of stories like this, something like Rashomon, but that feels different because you're looking at things from truly different points of view in that sort of story. Whereas with this book, I found myself flipping back and forth while I was reading, asking myself, is this the exact same dialogue? Oh my gosh, it is the exact same dialogue. But the ways in which that dialogue, the words were the same, but it would land in a different way. And I wanted to talk to you about, on a craft level, writing scenes from different points of view and then braiding them together the way that you did in this book. Yeah, actually, early on, I just copy pasted, done it almost verbatim. And my dad was the one that was like, no one remembers things exactly the same. And I was like, yes, but no one remembers it exactly differently either in these sorts of situations. They just have different takes on it. Um, Yeah. 
I mean, this is a weird reference, but there's a Key and Peele sketch where they're texting and one of them's very chill, like, oh, that's really sweet. And the other one's just getting more and more angry at everything mm -hmm. he's reading. And it's kind of like that in a way, the bottled emotions. But because I wanted it to be such a repressed bunch of people, it's not that much room to make things so different. I know a lot of people find the repetition quite tedious and I kind of like that aspect of it because it's almost like if you were scrolling through a feed, kind of doom scrolling, where things get a bit tedious and repetitive and suddenly you're like, have I seen this before? And you sort of go into a state of numbness and I feel like it emulates these people. You mentioned the numbness that comes from doom scrolling and the ways in which the things that we are battered with on a daily basis that individually should elicit pretty intense emotion when aggregated together or when hit in immediate repetition you do grow numb to these things what was it like living in the numbness of these characters who have gotten to this point or not not numbness i guess but the repression what was it like for you as a writer leaning into that space it wasn't very nice. To <laughs> yeah, the first draft was a really horrible experience to write. I spent a lot of time just going, oh, I hate this book. I hate it. In fact, one of the things I liked were the repetitive bits because it was easier. I didn't have to write from scratch. Mm. I had something to work with there. Editing the book was a joy because it's almost like a puzzle. Going through, making sure everything dovetails nicely together. And because the chapters are essentially short stories, you're just trying to make sure they connect nicely. So the editing process was great but the initial writing and being with these characters I didn't enjoy that and now many years later I actually am rather fond of these characters and I think readers are going to be like well I hate them all and I'm like but why there's just some damage there like there's reasons why horrible people are horrible was there a moment where you noticed that shift in yourself where you realized oh Hey, I kind of like these people. That's such a good question. I'm not really sure when it happened. I just sort of suddenly realized I was struggling with Tonya because I'd initially set out to start the story with her and I thought she was going to be my hero. And as I was writing the story, I realized that Eduardo was really the beating heart of the short story and he was actually the one I really felt affection for. And then I realized the reason why I was struggling with Tonya was because she was depressed in the same way that I was depressed at that time and I was impatient with her I was seeing bits of my own feelings reflected in her and so now I mean I'm a lot softer with her I've grown a lot more and I've grown to love her a lot as well I think I really struggled seeing her clearly because I was so frustrated with her but she wouldn't do anything other than what she could do. When you write from a very character-driven place, they sort of tell you where they're going. So even if you want to do something in the story, if the character won't do that, then you can't make them do that. So it was a very slow process and she was very irritating. But it was, it was more because she just didn't know what she wanted. And I didn't know how do you give your character a story when you don't know what they want. Because most stories rest on the character's desires and them going and chasing that and she's almost yeah. being forced to do things that she doesn't desire so then what do you do to take a step because she doesn't take any agency in stopping those things from happening either I think I was surprised by the ending of her story her chapter because I wasn't expecting Eduardo to step up and do the things that she couldn't do I was sort of expecting to write a story where she would be the one who would finally step up and she didn't I'm always curious to hear if there are things on the cutting room floor, as it were. 
were there scenes or points of view even that never made it in? It's not necessarily things on the cutting room floor, but things that I thought about adding and decided not to in the first instance. There were more chapters I'd thought about, but interestingly, I was asked to put more chapters in, but different ones than what I'd ended up doing. <laughs> Vidya and Tam were both late additions, which seems mental now when you look at it because they seem so right. But I did consider what if I did a chapter from the dam's perspective, the person that carries Tonya and Eduardo's baby. And I'd sort of thought about looking at menial training and things like that. But all of that was grappling with a different side of society. And I kind of wanted to focus on these horribly privileged people more, how things went for them. So I think that those things, rather than being on the cutting room floor, they're more never-ands. And there is potential to maybe come back to the world and do some of that in the future. But I'm also quite happy to leave the world behind, Sarah. You mentioned the dams, and I wanted to come back to this, the, the language decisions that you made in this book, talking about the birthing process as though it were the breeding process. I grew up with purebred terriers. My wife grew up on a horse farm, so we were both pretty familiar with that terminology, but it's always talking about animals. And there was something pleasantly jarring, I guess, to hear this language put to use to talk about human beings. Could you you tell me more about shaping this particular facet of language? I also grew up with horses and so that terminology was already in my head and then I was thinking well if you're designing your baby if you're not having your baby then you want to think about pedigrees and things like that automatically the first thing that jumped into my head was horse breeding it was something that was so familiar to me as a kid I wasn't a horse breeder or anything just hanging around with horses and hearing those words so I don't think it even took much of a leap it felt natural my agent says that there is a certain fixation in my work about parenting, which he finds very funny because I'm staunchly, I, I don't want kids. A fear of mine is having children. So maybe deep in my psychology, I decided to make it less appealing. It was definitely fun to describe. That was a fun sort of horrific bit to describe. I have this note because I think on the jacket copy, it's like Atwood meets Ishiguro. Mm. And I think both of those are excellent analogs for this. People who like Margaret Atwood and Kazuo Ishiguro are going to love this book. And also, I found myself almost wanting to call this book horror in a way that there are scenes in both of their books that I'd be like, that's horror, man. There's mm. no way you can call it something else, even though the books are getting shelved differently or talked about differently. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you about writing horror that isn't horror but that also is, you know? Yeah, it's interesting because I, I love horror films. I watch a lot of horror, but I haven't picked up that many horror books. I love to write gory bits in stuff, but I never <laughs> set out to write horror. I think that there's just so many disgusting things in the mundane. There are just so many things that you can quite easily, if you just describe it a certain way, something that's perfectly natural can suddenly take on a new aspect. And it is just sort of like a very small shift in your perspective where the thing doesn't actually change, but suddenly it looks disgusting. It's a really random story. Uh, I have a bit of trypophobia as well. So I really like eating crumpets. But I was watching this horror film with my partner. And at one point, this woman's back opens up in holes. And these bugs start crawling out of it. And he said, oh, it's like a crumpet. And I've never mm. been able to eat a crumpet since. <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> but it's just like those things where you see something really ordinary and suddenly it's horrifying. 
I mean, that's a great, succinct way to encapsulate so much of this book's one step into the future and to the left kind of thing. It's just slightly off the beam from where we currently are, but it feels eerily plausible in a way that I think the best science fiction particularly does, where you're sort of like, oh boy, I could see how we could end up there. I don't necessarily think that we are going to, but I sure could see it. And I'm wondering if you feel that from your perspective as the writer, or if you see things in our our world where you're sort of like if if this got pushed a little bit farther we would end up with something eerily like what I wrote. I think that was something I was thinking about at the start. There was more of a fear of technology from me when I started writing it. I was a bit of a self-imposed Luddite for a while. I mean I was using computers and stuff but I didn't get a smartphone for many years. I didn't even get a mobile phone for many years after all my friends had got them and I think that there was something that I found slightly a calling about that and that's probably just from imbibing way too much sci-fi as a kid where you know you're thinking no I don't want that future <laughs> let's not so I think there was a certain wariness and suspicion but that's definitely disappeared for me so it's definitely something that I don't see as so plausible now but at the time that I was writing it I thought that there was some element of plausibility to where things might go if pushed in a certain direction if we went a little bit more that way what changed? Do you know? Or was it just sort of a vibe shift? I think it was a vibe shift in general. I think during the pandemic, during lockdowns and things like that, our reliance on technology really became a, a lifeline rather than something to be frightened of. I mean, there's still elements that freak me out about it. I don't particularly like the way that Amazon's taking over everything and you've got your Alexas and things like that sitting there listening. My phone's probably listening to me right now. I mean, targeted ads and everything. It's kind of grotesque, but I I think that that's less a tech problem and more a capitalism problem. <laughs> I think that that's interesting to dig into as relates to family and particularly the question of having children. It does feel like every six months or so there's some article about how gene therapy is the thing or CRISPR babies are coming or mm. whatever. The thing that I found most interesting about the way your book made me think about Oh, God, I just thought of this phrase and now I have to say it, but it's horrifying to me. The future of birthing technology is the lack of physical intimacy in the world that you've created. Like there's something about thinking, you know, folks are going to go make babies in pretty much the normal way. And then after the fact, we can do some things to try to make sure that we're factoring out hereditary diseases. Certainly, there are also the far more horrifying eugenic ramifications of that. Yeah. But this, there's something about the removal of intimacy, of in some ways, the most physically intimate thing being removed. There's something both chilling and weirdly captivating about the intersection of capitalism, technology, and human life that I almost can't wrap my head around it from where I'm sitting right now in 2022 in the world that we live in. And also your book has opened the door a little bit where I'm like, huh, how would, what would that look like? Yeah, it is quite terrifying, particularly the eugenics of it. And also, especially because that rhetoric seems to be becoming a lot stronger these days. And I don't know if it's becoming stronger or if it's just the voices are being amplified partly because of the technology that we have to access these platforms where we can state strange opinions and people can listen. I actually wrote a short story about Chris. CRISPR-Cas9, where I had a character who 
is pregnant and they want to make sure that the baby doesn't come out with any disabilities. And her biggest secret is that she was disabled and her parents decided to, in air quotes, fix her. And she, since that, has this fear of that because what needed to be fixed? Nothing needed to be fixed. She was perfect the way she was kind of thing. But everyone sort of takes it as a matter of course. Like, of course you want to make their lives easier. You don't want them to have these hereditary illnesses and things like that. The lack of intimacy was definitely something that intrigued me because I like the idea of having two different ways of having babies. You could have your beaker babies or you could have the ones that are actually carried physically by people who then have to undergo all of the intimacy that other people are opting out of. They can be artificially inseminated, but the women specifically would have to have this very intimate connection with a child that's never going to be theirs as well. So, I mean, that's why I wouldn't mind doing a story about a dam just to see why someone would do that or how they would end up getting trapped into that kind of livelihood. People are always saying that beaker babies aren't quite right. And maybe it's the lack of intimacy when you aren't even grown in a human at all. So you already have none of the contact that is natural. And maybe that makes them slightly different. I think the book poses more questions than it answers. Yeah. Did you find the world was either getting ahead of you or external things were sort of like nudging the story in one way or another? Were you thinking about that stuff? Yeah, I worried about that. I think actually my boss, she probably worried about it a lot more. She's like, you've got to get an agent. You've got to get a publisher. You've got to get this out there because the world is going to overtake it. <laughs> she was really chipping me along. But yeah, I mean, there was a certain worry about it also because a lot of other writers are grappling with similar things. And so I would see films or read books and I'd be like, oh, that's very close to what I'm doing with this. And am I going to suddenly stumble across a book that is what I'm doing before yeah. I manage to get it out there. And that's certainly a worry, but obviously not one that you can let hold you back if you want to take writing seriously at all. What was kind of funny though, I wrote the book prior to COVID and it went out on submission late 2019, early 2020. And a lot of people were knocking it back saying it was too close to the bone because of this world where people can't touch and they didn't want to put something so depressing out. That was interesting to me because there was that similar element, at least, of the world overtaking the book slightly. I wanted to talk to you about Jake. Mm -hmm. You're paying attention to the rest of the story. And then there are these weird moments where you drop in and you're like, something is not right with Jake. <laughs> there was something so compelling about that. I think also because he was so different from everybody else who we were with. You mentioned that his story was initially a single chapter. And I wanted to know a little bit more about writing Jake and telling particularly his point of view. It was quite uncomfortable writing Jake. When I first started thinking about him and thinking about what was making him tick, it was almost a bit disgusting. But at the same time, the more time I spent with him, the more I realized it was almost like a very late puberty he's going through, where he's sort of just figuring shit out quite late on and it's partly because of his stunted upbringing and the fact that he's been forced to be this thing and then suddenly he sees someone he wants and it sparks all of these feelings that are so confusing because he's never been given the vocabulary for that. He feels so alone and so lost and he doesn't understand all the things that are happening with his body and all of that. So with that understanding, a uh, sort of tenderness grew and it became easier to write him. 
oh man, hearing you say that, I'm like, oh, of course that's what it is. It's like a delayed puberty. And I think that that simultaneously makes it even creepier. And I feel more empathy towards it. Like, oh God, what would it be like to go through this pretty traumatic time, I think for all human beings, but to go through it without help, without language, without other people around you going through it at the same time. Yeah, it's tragic how alone he is. Yeah. Because at least with the Burroughs family or with Tonya and Eduardo, they have each other even even if they're not having those kinds of relationships. But he is so starkly alone. And even when he does talk to someone on the end, he doesn't quite know who he's talking to. I was reading that story that came out a couple days ago about the Google engineer who thinks that their AI has become sentient. And I think there was a Wired piece that I saw that was like, we're addressing the wrong question. And the right question is to sort of be worried that non-sentient AI can still take advantage of our empathy in a way like we humanize animals we can start doing that with a computer and I found myself thinking about Jake's interactions and the way that he's sort of like are you real can you just tell me something and the response is both very human and also very robotic and his challenge of grappling with that just made me think about those scenes again yeah I think one of my favorite bits to write was probably Naomi's chapter. She was the easiest, like her voice came the most easily. And I really loved doing the interactions between her and Jake, specifically going over those conversations and things and what you're thinking when you're not actually confronted by the person you're talking to and you have no idea who they are, or what they look like. And yeah, you could be chatting to a bot. And what do you say? Because you're terrified that someone's going to find you out in some way. Right at the beginning, he thinks maybe it's a machine and he doesn't trust it. But at the same time, he thinks it's helpful because he needs to get those things out. He needs to say them to someone, anyone. But at the same time, he knows that this isn't a real relationship. It's, it's very lonely, I think. You know how sometimes you find a writer or a thinker whose work just clicks with you and you realize that they have opened up some new way of seeing the world or they've helped you better explain how it is that you see the world. One such writer for me is Douglas Rushkoff. He's a professor of media theory and digital economics at Queens CUNY. He was named by MIT as one of the world's 10 most influential intellectuals. He hosts the Team Human podcast. He's written tons of award-winning books. He's a former theater guy. I've had the pleasure of getting to talk to him a few times over the years. The first thing of his that I read was a book called Present Shock when everything happens now. And it revolutionized the way I understood time, technology, the intersection of the two. And so I've read everything that he's written since and plenty of the stuff before. He's also the person who I trust maybe the most in the world, to tell it straight, to talk about how technology can work for us as human beings, but often to look and see through the media bullshit to realize how it ultimately is being used to favor a handful of people, the super rich. His newest book, Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires, which is out in September, by the way, you should pre-order it immediately, is a fantastic, sometimes funny, often harrowing look at how the rich are planning to leave us behind, how they've been doing that, the mindset that makes it seem like, ah, yes, what if we all went to Mars instead of fixing the planet that we've been left with? I reached out to Rushkoff to ask him a deceptively simple question. How is it that we can strike a balance between the benefits of technology and the ways in which that technology is so often turned to the uses of evil? 
look at technologies from the perspective of the human beings rather than the perspective of the market. So the market is trying to use technology to extract value from people or to prevent people from creating and exchanging value between each other and monopolize that value for a particular abstract corporate entity. And digital in particular is really good at that because digital is a symbol system. Digital is not like analog industrial or pre-industrial technologies. Digital is just a language sitting above reality. Digital is a virtual reality set of symbols that influences what we do in the real world, but isn't really there. So digital is really consonant with capitalism and money systems, which are also not real, right? There are these weird symbolic systems over things. So what we have to do is be extra conscious and think about, am I deploying this technology, this Uber or Amazon or Airbnb? and B or an algorithm in order to get someone to do something or help someone to do something. And there's a real, real difference. So I think about technology in terms of what does someone want to accomplish and is this going to help that person do that? How do we help how do we build technologies that people use rather than build technologies that use people? I always like to say, you know, there was this great moment when it was the hippies and the psychedelic people, the William Gibson as an author or Timothy Leary as a thinker leading the technological renaissance as if it were a continuation of the expansion of human consciousness that we got in the 1960s. In the 1960s, everybody blew their own mind. And with the internet in the 90s, we're going to blow our collective mind. We're going to be the collective brain for Gaia to become conscious as a single giant wonderful being. But the problem is, you know, Wired Magazine and the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ came along and said, oh, no, no, no. This internet is something else. What it's going to do is increase the surface area on the human marketplace so that we can extract even more value. You know, the, it looked like the, the market couldn't grow anymore. We got all the way to California. People in Africa were pushing back. What are we going to do? How do we grow? And it's like, ah, the internet will create this new realm of growth. And that's really the way it's been looked at ever since. And that's, that's not, again, it's not about helping people. That's about helping capitalism. You know, the idea that it's, it's here, it's look in someone else's eyes. It's that face-to-face -face local reality. That's where you actually live. And the rest of this stuff, to the extent that it can make that better, cool. But it can't replace it. It's not a substitute for it. So many people who develop these technologies really were afraid of other humans. They really always saw the technology as a way of retreating. Both technology and money create this illusion, this expectation that you could somehow escape from life. For me, it's most clear in all the apocalypse bunkers and missions to Mars that these guys want to do. You know, oh, the world is going to shit, but I'm going to escape from the rest of you. I'm going to rise above the masses and move to my bunker or my Mars colony. But it also infects the way they think about pretty much everything. And I think if you're a real human, you realize, no, 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 no. The whole point is the commons. It's to join with your fellow people and play and laugh and be on the level with the rest of us, not escape from us. I don't know about you, but I think it's time to go outside and look at some trees, put my feet in the grass. It is still very hot here in the Catskills. 
as I imagine it is in New Delhi and in Glasgow and in Los Angeles and really everywhere because, as we all know, the planet's on fire. But there's hope. At least sometimes it feels like there can be hope. There are days, there are stories, there are things that make us think that there is a better world coming. Not somewhere else, not on some other planet, but right here. We have plenty of stories about how not to do it. So hopefully, as you walk through the world today, tomorrow, next month, next year, you'll think a little bit more about how to avoid those stories. And instead, maybe, just maybe, we'll make something truly wonderful. This has been Tor Presents Voyage Into Genre, a co-production with LitHub Radio. I'm your host, Drew Broussard. Music was by Danny Lanchoni of Evelyn. Mixing, mastering, and production, courtesy of Stardust House. Thanks very much to the team at Tor, to Justin Alvarez at LitHub, and to all of you for listening. We'll see you in two weeks. <laughs>